As today is a bank holiday, we're going to do a slightly shorter show than usual, but we are making the most of it because we are going to take on one of the biggest questions of our age, COVID-19, which has killed upwards of three and a half million people, potentially nearly 10 million, if you believe some estimates. Where did it come from? Now, until now, the dominant theory has always been that the novel coronavirus jumped from animals to humans, maybe via an intermediary um, animal. However, in recent weeks, the idea that the virus originally leaked from a lab has gained prominence. So why are the press and politicians changing their tune? Does this reflect new evidence about the virus's origins or a deeper political agenda? And what would be the implications if we were to confirm that COVID-19 did leak from a lab? Now, over a year ago, Donald Trump said this. Have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of this virus? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And I think that the World Health Organization should be ashamed of themselves because they're like the public relations agency for China. Now, at the time, that was widely dismissed um, as a crank conspiracy theory from Donald Trump, a conspiracist and many of his conspiracist supporters. However, the tide of opinion among liberal politicians and some in the scientific establishment now seems to be shifting. US President Joe Biden has launched a new investigation into COVID-19's origins. This was his spokesperson, Karine Jean-Pierre. President is asking the U.S. intelligence community in cooperation with other elements of our government to redouble efforts to collect and analyze information that could bring the world closer to a definitive conclusion on the origin of the virus and deliver a report to him again in 90 days. So what changed and how did the lab leak theory go from a conspiracy to the subject of serious investigation? That was the question posed in a recent piece in The Guardian by science writer Stephen Baranyi. And Stephen joins me now. The title of, of your article was you know, how this went from a conspiracy theory to something that's being seriously investigated. Can you, can you talk about that, that transition? What, what did change? There's been enormous acceleration on this in just like the past couple months, um, sort of starting with media attention um, in sort of January, February, specifically some pieces in New York Magazine, um, some former New York Times reporters uh, sort of laying out um, what had previously been thought of as like quite a conspiratorial case, quite a circumstantial case for the COVID-19 pandemic actually arising in the lab. Um, and then you had sort of a, a break moment a few weeks ago, um, 18 really prominent scientists um, wrote a letter, an open letter in um, Science magazine, basically saying uh, not that, that, you know, lab leak was for sure, not even that they thought that lab leak was the most likely um, explanation, but that um, they were looking for, or uh, they're backing rather, like a full investigation. And then you've got um, Biden uh, sort of following um, much more reasonably uh, uh, Trump's call. Um, to, to look into lab leak. Um, and I think you could say it's, it's sort of fully mainstreamed at this point. Let's, I suppose, break down what one means by a lab leak theory. On, on the very basic level, it's saying this didn't come organically from animals to humans. It leaked from a lab. But within that, you've got three types of theory, haven't you? You've got one, which was that this was a, a strain that existed naturally in nature from a bat, but it had been collected by people in a lab and then it leaked from the lab. The other is you've had something called gain-of-function research, whereby people in the lab have been intentionally improving 
a virus, making it more fit to spread among humans to then, I suppose, prepare for if it were to occur naturally in, in, in the environment, but it's actually you know, leaked and what they were trying to warn us about, they'd, they've ended up creating. And then the final one is some sort of bioweapon. So you've got a lab that was that told us it was investigating viruses um, that occur naturally, but actually they were creating a virus which could later be used as a weapon. Those are the three. Now I'm guessing the two that are being taken seriously are the, are the natural strain that was collected and the, the virus created in the lab through this gain of function research which you know to improve the fitness of a virus is is that correct or is there, yeah. are there people in the scientific community saying it might be a bioweapon yeah that's about right i mean uh, the bioweapon one god i mean if you think if you're like really sure about anything after the past year like you're a jerk but like i'd be willing to say that you know the bioweapon is, is the sort of most out there i mean SARS is not COVID is not the very not like a very good bioweapon if that makes sense um like it's really bad but but Surely, I would think, you know, if our scientists are any good, it could be much worse. Um, it also doesn't make a lot of sense as one. Well. But yeah, I mean, the, the first two seem to be the most reasonable. I mean, like you said, we'll get on to this very specific, um, the very specific circumstances of the lab that people are very suspicious about. This lab is, is the world's premier collector of, of wild coronaviruses. So, so the question is, you know, did they get one that they then didn't report uh, and then it got out? Or did they actually improve it? Which is something that frighteningly uh, goes on. Um, well, now people are learning much more than they previously thought. I think it's time to name the lab. We're going to name that suspicious lab. It's the the, the Wuhan Institute of <laughs> Virology. Um, now, obviously, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is very nearby Wuhan, um, which is where the first outbreak emerged. I want to go to um, a paragraph in Stephen's piece from from the Guardian, which um, is you know suggesting why people are quite so interested in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So, in the piece, you write. What is also known for sure is that the Wuhan Institute of Virology, nearby to the first recorded outbreaks, is the world's premier collector of wild bat coronaviruses, has grown them in their in-house laboratories before, and had the expertise to conduct gain-of-function experiments. If you wanted to create a pandemic coronavirus in a lab, the WIV would be a hell of a place to do it. Now, to me, I mean, I've, I've never really dismissed the lab leak theory just because it seems to me an incredible coincidence if this were to have emerged in nature for it to have emerged in nature. And it just so happened to do so in an enormous country, but next to the one specific lab that does the investigations into this type of coronavirus. And they don't do investigations in that lab because, you know, this is a, uh, these types of coronaviruses are native to Wuhan. The bat cave is actually, you know, where they collect these things from is, is really far away. So it seems to me this would be a big coincidence were it not to be a lab leak. And I suppose my question to you, Stephen, is if this were a naturally occurring virus, what would be the chances of it emerging precisely next to a lab such as this? Is, is this, are there labs like this everywhere and it could have emerged next to some, you know, Beijing Institute of Virology and we'd be having the same conversations about that lab? Or, or is it a real, real coincidence that it emerged next to this one? I'm not sure this is going to help the the sort of anti-lab leak side, um, but there have been other institutes in in both China uh, and and in the United States that viruses have escaped containment of, um, although not not super super deadly ones. I think what you're sort of getting at is that the case for for lab leak for this coming from a lab um, is that you know circumstantially you've got a lab that does this exact research, um, which is right there, uh, and then you're sort of placing that up against 
you know, whether this could be a naturally emerging phenomenon, even though, you know, the, bat, the, the bats in question are not nearby. I mean, I think that if you're going to be fair to the natural emergence theory, um, you have to start from the idea that it's probably an incredibly rare um, evolutionary and logistical occurrence anyway. There's tons of coronaviruses in the world. There's tons of viruses in the world. Most of them don't go, don't turn into a worldwide pandemic. So you're already looking at a really rare event. Um, and, you know, these sort of things happen all the time in nature, um, incredibly rare events that have massive consequences in the history of nature and history of evolution. And I guess the burden of proof on on the the natural emergence side is to show both that it's evolutionarily evolutionarily plausible um, that the virus emerged uh, in the form that it did, um, and then that also that it's logistically plausible um, that it made its way to Wuhan. Um, and I mean the the way that would happen um, is the way that, that you've already seen sort of presented, which would be sort of through the, the movement of animals, um, not bats, but some sort of intermediary. And of course, the fact that they haven't found anything for that um, is one of the big, big knocks on the natural emergence theory. Um, but again, you know, uh, it, it took years to find um, the natural reservoir or the natural emergence point for both uh, MERS and SARS. So anybody who's sort of on the side of, of natural emergence says, you know, let's just wait. We're looking, we're looking, we're looking, um, which, of course, you know, doesn't satisfy anybody who said the lab's right there. I suppose what I was getting at in a, maybe a roundabout way is how rare is the Wuhan Institute of Virology or how specific is it? Because obviously it, 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 there, there's um, circumstantial evidence that there is a, a, a lab that does research on this kind of viruses. But if these labs are everywhere, then, you know, it, it wouldn't be particularly strong evidence that it came from a lab because wherever it emerged, we could say, oh, but it's nearby this lab that also does this. But if this is kind of the only lab in the world or one of only a very small amount of labs in the world that produce coronaviruses like this, that would seem like a much stronger case that it would be too much of a coincidence for it to have just naturally emerged next to the one leading institute. So is it correct to think of this as a as a very, very specific lab that is doing research on these kind of coronaviruses in a way that not many other labs are? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, that, if that's the simplicity of the question you're asking, yeah, 100%. There are several other institutes in China that, that conduct research on coronavirus, um, but there's not very many of them, and none of them to the level of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, I mean, again, the, the world's premier collection of bat coronaviruses. So if there were to be a lab leak, it would be here. That's the one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> doesn't mean it was, but it's, uh, it's a hell of an argument. Yeah. Gain of function research. Um, I, I've sort of explained briefly what it is, but you're you're the science writer, so I, I want to throw this to you in terms of you know what is gain of function research, why is it controversial, and why is it you know in the in the spotlight when it comes to the lab leak hypothesis? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd preface this by saying that I don't think the vast majority of gain of function research is a good idea. There's ways to alter viruses that are safe. If you're telling them how to infect human cells, that's probably bad. Um, so gain-of-function research is basically, I mean, some people don't like the term, but as it's being presented, is basically taking um, a virus and, as you said earlier in the show, improving on it. And what this means in the context of what people are talking about in terms of the Wuhan Institute of Virology or, or other institutes that have studied coronaviruses are to look at a virus that, you know, infects animals, but is known to or is suspected of being able to jump to humans at some point. And so basically what you can do is you can introduce functions that other viruses have 
that allow them to infect humans. Um, and so this is like direct editing um, of, of the virus by a scientist. Um, and then you can see how it how it works in, in human cells. Um, so to sort of get an idea of, of what kind of threat this might be. And then the other thing, um, which is really central uh, to this sort of idea that there might have been a lab leak, is you can sort of mimic the conditions of placing the virus right up against a human population. So you just, you basically like bang the virus against human cells over and over and over again um, until it evolves the ability to, to enter them. And this is sort of like accelerated evolution. And the, the reason people do it, um, you know, whether or not it's, it's a good thing to do, the reason people do it is because then the virus sort of naturally shows you the path it would take to infect humans. And so if you keep doing it and it keeps using the same, the same um, mechanism, then you can sort of assume that's probably how it's going to, to emerge as a pandemic. Now, if you've been listening to that, uh, you probably realize that then that means the virus that they just used for those experiments can now um, infect at least human cells. Um, and so, you know, there you have the sort of core of, of why people are opposed to it. Mm, so you, you've, you've sped up evolution in the worst direction you could speed it up in, which is to say, how can we make this animal virus really infectious in humans? And the justification to do it is to say, now we can prepare for if it happens in nature, but it, what the lab leak hypothesis in the, in the gain of function version, which is that, that, you know, they modified the virus as well as collecting it, then that, that would be that they then leaked it and, and they caused it. Let's look at some of the, the intelligence that's been coming out. And now lots of this is unpublished intelligence, which I'm inherently suspicious of, but it, it's worth mentioning it anyway. So, so one of the reasons um, the lab leak hypothesis is back in the headlines is um, because of U.S., intelligence, which has either recently come to light or recently come to prominence, however um, one looks into it, and especially um, a write-up about them in the Wall Street Journal, suggesting there were a group of researchers in the Wuhan Institute of Virology who, in November, so a couple of months before we know the outbreak started, came down with symptoms of something which would be consistent with COVID-19, but could also be consistent with, with other types of flu. If there were to be a lab leak, this is how you'd expect it to happen. You'd expect there to be some workers in the lab who get sick because it's, you know, it's leaked out of wherever. Um, then you get a cluster. Some of them have symptoms of COVID-19 and then, you know, it's out by then, isn't it? A family members got it or whatever. So if this were to be the case, um, it would seem again, it builds that circumstantial case. Well, unpublished intelligence from the American agencies. I mean, you, you know, you think of you think of Iraq and all sorts of things. Do you trust the Americans here? You just can't take anonymous intelligence briefings off of a report that that I think, if I recall properly, the WHA hadn't even seen the report itself. Is it just just an anonymous intelligence source? But yeah, like you said, Iraq, the entire history of of planted stories in the Cold War, um, as delicious as it is, um, I think the best you can do here is to use that as a jump off point to you know as an investigation that could actually be legitimated an anonymous intelligence report. I just can't. I can't do it. And I suppose that, in a way, is a bit of a segue into who do we trust, who don't we trust? And especially, you know, myself, I'm not a scientist, so I, I don't understand how viruses evolve, but I do kind of understand interests. So, you know, who's, whose interest is it to make a big deal out of this? Maybe the American intelligence services. Who's in favor of covering this up? Parts of the scientific community who are invested in gain-of-function research probably the Chinese government. Um, and, and you've got this, you know, this constellation of interests. 
uh, with certain people wanting us to know nothing about this and certain people wanting us to you know, go wild with our imaginations. And you know, Trump obviously wanted us to kind of think it was a bioweapon. Who's trying to cover this up and who's trying to blow it out of proportion, I suppose, is my question to you. I have been trying to as much as I can follow this through the scientific literature, um, just because, again, I, I'm, if I'm following intelligence reports, I'm going to be up until 4 a.m. parsing these things and I'm never going to figure it out and you'll never know. Um, but if you sort of go through that, there are still people, um, you, mean you, can, you can find them in the scientific literature saying that clearly the most plausible explanation is natural emergence. And they'll come and say that and you should not listen to these people. I mean, there are the the weight of experts, uh, people that have parsed these things at this point is is really on the fence. It's it's on maybe it's on it's on we need to investigate. By that same token, you know, maybe the U.S. senators and um, sort of uh, current and ex intelligence personnel who are deeply invested in uh, some manner of cold or otherwise war with China, you know, you know where where they're sort of going with it. Um, and, and a lot of this stuff has muddied the waters since it first started. Um, you know, the reason that it was discounted um, so early, some combination of busyness, laziness, credulity, um, and also people genuinely not, not wanting to, to, you know, enter into a, a needless uh, conflict with, with China. I think that the way you need to look at it is that it's not really necessary to be a partisan of either side, as, as boring as that is. I hate to be a centrist, I hate to be a both sides kind of person. Um, but what you've seen over the past couple of months um, in terms of like the idea of lab leak picking up steam is not so much the, the actual proving of a lab leak theory. It's, it's bringing up enough circumstantial evidence so that the balance of opinion is now open. You know, both sides are incredibly open. Um, and it's just incredibly hard, you know, to tell either way. And the, the really sad thing is that you, I'm just going to have to tell you to, you know, maybe wait or, or push for an investigation um, or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's not that it's not that anybody's proved anything at this point. The, the momentum right now is just in opening up the discussion. Who would do the investigation? Because, I mean, there, there has been an investigation by the World Health Organization. They came away with a report that said the natural origins story is very, very likely. And even though they're not ruling out the lab leak story, they're saying it's highly unlikely. Now, they got a lot of backlash for that because they, they interviewed scientists and they just believed whatever answer they gave them. They said, oh, we're not going to look at the raw data. And I mean, China was obviously involved very heavily in the investigation. It's kind of a diplomatic thing, which sort of undermines its ability to search for the truth. But who would be able to search for the truth? I mean, obviously, the Chinese government, and I mean, I think they're overly demonized in many ways, but if it were a lab leak, they wouldn't want people to find that out. So, so how would a fair investigation possibly take place? If China knew that there was no lab leak. If they knew, like, what people are asking for in an investigation is for the Wuhan Institute of Virology to be opened to investigators from some sort of international body um, for full interviews, uh, full parsing of their lab journals, uh, whatever records they have, and to take all of the strains that, you know, may not be cataloged of coronaviruses that they have and let people investigate them, sequence them, get dig into the dig into them by scientists. Even if China knew that, that those records were clean, they're not going to let anybody in. You know, it's not in it's not in their interest. I mean, they didn't they did the Chinese government, the Chinese state didn't avoid the sort of um, open society can opener of 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 intervention in the nineties just to to sort of let international investigators in now. It's just not how they operate. An investigation, I think the only way that actually happens is if the demands for it manage to move 
into a sphere that China would actually care about, um, which would be actually just like the literally the balance of world powers um, and not just, you know, the United States, uh, which is this very adversarial power that, that China has big interest in stonewalling um, actually came along. Like if, if the entire WHO turned on them, um, you know, if, if countries that actually sort of cared about cultivating um, turned on it, there's a possibility. Um, but, you know, the other possibility is, is that they're, they're able to stonewall it forever. Um, and, you know, then the only thing you can sort of hope for is, you know, a whistleblower within. Um, and then even then, it's not clear that you'd ever get sort of the smoking gun that everybody's looking for. Let's go on to our next story, which is also COVID related and actually probably more significant because it's about saving lives in the here and now. Now, the rise of the B16172 variant of coronavirus in Britain risks throwing off course our schedule for abandoning lockdown restrictions or the final social distancing restrictions which are in place. However, given the success of our vaccination drive, even if the variant continues to spread, that shouldn't risk another wave of deaths, um, anything like what we saw in January and February. And yet while the vaccine is mostly able to keep up with the new variant in Britain, that's not the case in much of the rest of the world. And due to the heightened transmissibility of this new variant, one of the UK's leading epidemiologists has warned that the majority of COVID deaths on a global scale could take place after there are enough vaccines to protect all of those most at risk. So in short, the maldistribution of vaccines could lead to millions more deaths, more deaths than we had before a vaccine was available. Now, the epidemiologist who made this warning um, is Adam Kucharski. He is an associate professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and also sits on the SPI-M modelling subgroup of SAGE, someone who really does know his stuff. However, um, this is probably an issue where you, you don't need to be an expert to see how dangerous the current situation is in the world right now. First of all, we know the Indian variant or the B16172 variant is much more transmissible than Kent. You remember the effect that the Kent variant had on us. That cases absolutely rocketed. This is worse than that. Two, most places in the world have really, really low rates of vaccination. Now, this map shows what proportion of each country has received at least one dose of the vaccine. Over 60% of the population received one dose. At the moment, that only includes Israel, Malta, Bhutan, and some very small um, island nations. Between 50 and 60% have had at least one vaccine. That includes the UK, the US, Canada, and Chile. Then between 10 and 20. So that's not very many people at all, really. If you've got a, a transmissible, highly, highly transmissible strain, then just having 10 to 20% of the population having one dose, you're still in a real danger zone. That includes India, Colombia, Mexico, and Russia. And then most depressingly, less than 5% and less than 1% of people having had one vaccine. And that includes nearly all of Africa and most of the Middle East, and then also some parts of Southeast Asia. So you can see if you've got this highly, highly transmissible variant and you've got the majority of the world essentially living in in countries where you've got less than 10% of the population vaccinated, we could see something, I mean, essentially worse than what we've already had. And what we've already had was horrific, right? So that's where that 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 warning is coming from. Now, the answer here, of course, is that we need to produce more vaccines. We need to be distributing those vaccines better so that people in Africa, for example, aren't waiting another two years to get vaccinated because it's going to be quite difficult to keep out the B16172 variant 
until then. On that issue, so this quote was from an article by Zainab Tufeki in the New York Times, very, very clever analyst, actually, I do recommend reading her stuff. So on how we should respond to this, she writes, waiving vaccine patents is fine, but unless it's tied to a process that actually increases the supply of vaccines, it's a little bit more than it's it's a little bit more than expressing thoughts and prayers after a tragedy. Officials from all nations that produce vaccines need to gather for an emergency meeting immediately to decide how to commandeer whatever excess capacity they have to produce more through whatever means necessary. And that piece ends by saying, like all pandemics, this one will end either with millions, maybe billions, being infected or being vaccinated. This time, world leaders have a choice, but little time to make that choice before it is made for them. So a bit of a call to action there. We're either going to get herd immunity via having a vaccine which is distributed fairly to you know almost everyone, or we're going to get herd immunity by millions or billions more people catching this virus and you know, millions more people in that case inevitably dying. Um, Stephen, you've written a lot on vaccine production over the last few months. You've spoken about it on, on this show before. What are your, I suppose, top takeaway points from how we do avoid this catastrophe waiting to happen? Something that she wrote about in that piece, which is super, super good, and I also really recommend Zainab as an analyst, um, was that you know there needs to be a high-level meeting among states, amongst, as they say, stakeholders, um, you know, about how to produce more vaccines. I mean, I think something that might absolutely shock people, it absolutely shocked me when I learned about it, is that, to my knowledge still, actually, but at least as of a month ago, um, there have been no high-level interstate meetings, whether through the WHO, um, whether through, you know, the, the G20, G7, whatever um, international channels you want, uh, about how to make more vaccines. It's been done entirely at the national level. And so she, she's totally right. I mean, there needs to be some sort of international coordination. Um, pandemic response in general at the international level has been a huge failure, but but that can't continue as we move into this sort of, um, as you said, new and, and still incredibly dangerous phase. How much of it is about patents and how much of it is about something else? As you know, I've been on here, you've talked to me about it, you know, advocating for dropping patent protections. There have been lots of people getting behind dropping patent protections, even even old Joe Biden um, is at least partially, uh, you know, supporting uh, waiving patents. But, uh, you know, well, some people will argue against this and say that it doesn't matter um, to share patents. Uh, you know, you need to need the know-how. It's just a, a distraction. Um, you know, people, I think we've always seen patents as the first step. You need to make sure that some company's not going to sue you. Uh, and then the next step is to actually, you know, in an environment where you're not worried about some pharmaceutical company coming after you, um, and ideally in an environment where states and international organizations actually get involved um, on the production side, um, you know, then you, you sort of uh, create a global response uh, and move forward. Um, so the patents are a really good rallying cry, um, but it's always been seen as just a, just a first step in this process. This warning from Zainab Tufeki and Adam Kaczarski is it's nothing new, right? This is not a new discovery. And it does feel like at times, you know, people have been raising this warning for a very long time now, and it feels like kind of nothing's changed. From your perspective, what would be the worst case scenario here and what would be the best case scenario? Is there a, a, a sequence of events whereby the world suddenly wakes up, takes this seriously, and we get vaccines distributed everywhere? What would that look like? And what's the worst case scenario? 
What, what, what are those decision points going to be? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd start with the worst case. The worst case scenario is, I mean, you've read the same analyses I have. The worst case scenario is that we basically rely on the vaccine producers we already have. Um, it doesn't get expanded very much. The, the, the developing world gets it after we're done. Um, and then the ideas are that anywhere from 2023 to 2024, um, is when we get reasonable amounts of vaccination. And that's, that's only in most analyses about 60%, um, which we now know, you know, is not, not necessarily fully protective. I don't like to speculate on, on how, you know, the virus is going to evolve. I, I do hate doom saying, but you know, the longer you wait, the more infections there are, the more likely, you know, you start to see more significant, uh, I hate saying immune escape because there's no like snapping and it, it just suddenly escapes, but you know, you, mm. you'll see a decline in efficiency of, of the vaccines for sure. Um, the best case scenario, it looks like we do. We have an international response that joins up production across the world. Um, you know, it, it, you have, in my view, the best way to do it would be, you know, basically a public option for vaccine production. You have coordination of supply chains, of knowledge sharing between countries, um, and then you actually have the countries where coronavirus is raging right now, manufacturing their own way. Um, out of the crisis. What you are actually seeing now is a little bit of movement. I mean, you're seeing some proposals in the United States that look quite good, a limited version of good, um, where people are basically like public citizens got a very good analysis of this, but that the US itself could produce probably enough vaccine for the world for under, you know, what is it? I think 30 or $50 billion. Um, and so this is still national level, but at least people are looking at, at sort of a, a non-marketized production option. And what I'd really like to see is that jump beyond national borders and, and into an international response. Super, super interesting. Obviously an incredibly important question. And I fucking hope some progress happens on it soon because it's terrifying to, to think about what could happen um, next. Um, Stephen, thank you so much for talking to us about both of those issues tonight. Um, I'm sure, well, both of them clearly we're going to be talking about for, for a long time from now. For now, you've been watching Tiski Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.